bringing the church into this building. As I say, I think every week, I don't think I've missed that one in the last several years. Um, glad to have you guys here. If you're new uh, and you're wondering, uh, what, are, what are we doing? Uh, we're about to open the Bible together. What is that going to look like? How do you guys go about that? Um, well, you, you happen to find us, if this is your first Sunday, in a study of the book of Acts, and we're pretty deep into this thing at this point. Uh, we're actually in the final stretch of this sermon series. If you are new, uh, I would implore you to stick around uh, and dive in to the next sermon series that we will start about four weeks from now in the book of Ecclesiastes. Fascinating book of the Bible. Um, yes, it is uh, intensely depressing uh, on the one hand, uh, the author of Ecclesiastes says, everything is vanity, meaningless, coming right out of the book of Acts where it's like anything can happen through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we're gonna dive into everything is vapor, it's a grabbing at, at smoke. Um, but I think by the time we get to the end of Ecclesiastes, you'll be incredibly encouraged to see how the Christian life actually works. And I think you'll experience a, a deeper, greater freedom than, than maybe you've experienced up to this point in your life. If you're not familiar with the book of Acts, it's the incredible story of a band of Christ followers essentially acting as his witnesses, spreading the gospel by land and sea to the farthest reaches of the known world. Um, the, the, the last chapters of the book of Acts are really interesting. Um, in fact, if you go and look online, whatever your preferred podcast is, uh, when you're bored with me and you want something more comprehensive, something better, just something in addition to your local preaching pastor, go check out the archives of the book of Acts with, with those online um, pastors and preachers. And I think you'll notice that a lot of pastors, a lot of preaching pastors don't preach through the last chapters of the book of Acts because it feels like you're kind of drudging your way through mud knee deep. You have to read very lengthy passages of scripture to get one unit of thought. It's a lot of Bible reading. We're gonna do that this morning. We're actually gonna work through parts of three different chapters of the book of Acts just to get one essential basic episode in the life of the Apostle Paul. That's the, the last chapters of Acts, by the way. It's the closing uh, with the adventures of Paul as he journeys from Jerusalem to Caesarea and ultimately all the way to Rome on trial for his very life, just like the Jesus that he had come to know, love, and follow. This morning, we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna see something that we haven't really talked about, I don't think, up to this point in our study of the book of Acts. This morning, we're gonna see the invisible hand of God's providence in a way that perhaps we haven't seen since the Esther series, for those of you who were around when we worked through that book of the Bible, as God makes good on his promise, as we're gonna to see, to preserve Paul's life all the way to Rome, all the way to the end of the earth, to use the language of Acts chapter one, verse eight, the very first promise of Jesus in, in the book of Acts. Though Paul as we're also gonna see, a man in shackles has very little power and influence as to the unfolding events of this story. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 23, start off in verse 12. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. you can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible or you come in with a translation that's difficult to track with, please take that as the church's gift to you. Happy early Mother's Day, whether you're a man or a woman, that's our gift, all right? Let me, uh, let me pray, because 14 days post-Easter, I still am lacking in voice here, and if I get animated, my voice might crack like a 14-year-old boy. So let me go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help, um, and then we'll jump in and get to work. God, 
God of immeasurable power, the same God at work through the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts 2,000 years ago to advance the, the gospel, to build the church with the gates of hell powerless to stop it. One and same Holy Spirit, we're desperate for you this morning. Many of us, we, we come in in a slumber, our hearts slumbering, our very eyes still with sleep in them, our coffee not quite doing the trick just yet. God, would you awaken us? In these moments, we sit with your divinely inspired, breathed out word in a form that we can actually understand and comprehend. You've revealed yourself to us in and through the scriptures. And I pray that, that we would get a feeling sense of the adventure we're about to embark on. That we get the privilege of opening up your word together and seeing you all over the pages this morning. I pray that we would walk away encouraged for those of us who are in Christ to know that we are on the side of immeasurable power and true freedom in this story, that you have secured the victory most surely in Jesus Christ for us. God, would you encourage us? Would you comfort us? Would you excite our hearts with who you are? And I pray that as we leave this place, there would be no way that we can compartmentalize what we've soaked in and taken in this morning. There would be no way that our next breath of, of scripture, of gospel air would be when we do this again next Sunday. But rather, that this time together would impact Monday morning and Tuesday afternoon and Thursday night and so forth and so on. God, I'm desperate for you. Would you give my voice strength to, to make it through these moments together? as we unpack your word together. Holy Spirit, would you give me a feeling sense of the things that I preach even in these moments? In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen. So coming back to last week, if you were with us, you'll recall that the Apostle Paul has just wrapped up the last of his three famous missionary journeys uh, represented by the maps in the back of all of our Bibles, um, bringing the final journey to a close in the city of Jerusalem, just like Jesus' ministry came to a close in the city of Jerusalem. It's in that very city that Paul has just been rescued by, an, or not rescued by, rescued from an angry mob, having been accused of taking a Gentile into an area of the Jerusalem temple temple that uh, Gentiles were forbidden to go into, an accusation without any sort of evidence or merit, but one that leads to Paul's arrest nonetheless. Last week, we, we saw the apostle Paul speak not only before the hostile Jewish crowd that had him arrested, but also before, before the Sanhedrin, the, um, the Jewish Supreme Court on religious matters, you might say. Both episodes causing a significant riot, both episodes putting Paul's very life at risk, which helps to make sense of why Jesus shows up. The very last verse that we looked at last week, Acts 23, verse 11, Jesus shows up to the apostle Paul and says, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. That promise that that Paul would eventually and ultimately make it to Rome, that sets the stage for where we're gonna go this morning, okay? So 
So put that in your pocket. Hang on to Acts 23, verse 11. Jesus says, you're gonna make it to Rome. And I want you to see in this morning's passage all that God does through his invisible hand of providence to orchestrate the events that would bring the apostle Paul to Rome, thus proving God once again to be a promise fulfiller. Okay, chapter 23, verse 12. This morning's passage starts off with these words. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. All right, right off the bat, we're meant to feel the tension. Jesus has just said to Paul in the, the verse prior to this section we just read, you must also testify in Rome. Immediately followed by an assassination plot, plot to do away with, with the apostle Paul. As, as a group of more than 40 angry Jews make an oath not to eat or drink again until Paul is dead. Their plan being to have the, the Sanhedrin request Paul's presence for some follow-up questions so that they might ambush Paul en route to that very meeting. Not only does the life and continued ministry of the apostle Paul hang in the balance, but also the very promise-keeping words of Jesus, which is what makes the very next verse in this passage so incredible. Verse 16, now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, like many of you in this room had no idea that Paul even had a family, right? The Bible doesn't talk about Paul's family a whole lot, right? And all of a sudden there's this nephew that many of us had no idea that even existed who just happens to be in the very city where this is taking place within earshot of the plan to kill his uncle, which is no coincidence at all, by the way. God is on the move like Aslan bringing his redemptive purposes to fulfillment through his unseen hand of providence. Book of Acts, like the book of Esther, and we'll talk more about this later on, is the story of a promise-fulfilling, covenant-keeping God who will do whatever it takes to make sure that his redemptive purposes come to fulfillment. A God who doesn't just work through miracles, but who works through, and this is encouraging to all of us, who works through the ordinary events of billions of people over the course of thousands of years to fulfill his promises and accomplish his purposes. We talked about it for the better part of an hour and a half in my community group this past week, and it was sweet. Verse 17 goes on to say, Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune for he has something to tell him. So he took him, that is Paul's nephew, and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he had something to say to you. And the tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him, but do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready waiting for your consent. Verse 22, so the tribune dismissed the young man charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Just so happens that not only does Paul's nephew overhear the plan to assassinate his uncle, 
But the centurion, it just so happens, is willing to heed Paul's request, taking his nephew to the tribune, though he's not obligated to comply with the wishes of a man in shackles. And the tribune, it just so happens, is willing to give Paul's nephew a hearing with a surprisingly heightened sense of curiosity as to what the young man has to say. Again, none of these things coincidences. God is on the move, bringing his redemptive purposes to fulfillment through his unseen hand of providence. Paul's nephew gets the opportunity to expose the assassination plot on his uncle's life, which leads the tribune to discreetly send Paul to the governor, Felix, in Caesarea. So that the story goes on to say in verse 23, then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. All right, don't, don't miss what's happening here. Lysias makes it appear as though he were seeking to protect a citizen of Rome, failing to include the fact that if you go back to last Sunday's passage, that he almost had Paul, a Roman citizen, illegally tortured. He's seeking to, to save face here, to maintain what he perceives to be a position of power, though he's been powerless to get any sort of answers over the course of the last couple chapters as to what this riot is all about. Meanwhile, in contrast, Paul makes the journey to Caesarea guarded like a king by roughly 500 soldiers. Like the powerless prisoner providentially protected by the powerful king, the risen Jesus. More than, more than the Roman soldiers transporting their prisoner is the God of heaven transporting his ambassador in these verses. It goes on to say in verse 31, so the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris, and on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. And on reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Felix, or, or as the uh, history books record him, Tiberius Antonius Felix, it's a nice Roman name. He, he was the governor of Judea from 52 to 59 AD. So he's about seven years the governor of Judea. He was the, interestingly, the first slave in the history of the Roman Empire, right? Think about this. The first slave in the history of the Roman Empire to become a governor of a Roman province, having been freed by the emperor Claudius's mother when he was a kid. As a result of his background, Romans of noble birth tended to look down their nose at, at Felix. In fact, Tacitus, who was a Roman historian, once described Felix as a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of a king with the spirit of a slave. All right, hang on to that. Tuck that away 
for just a few moments from now because we're gonna, we're gonna talk about two themes, two contrasts here. And, and I'll, I'll dive into this a little bit more in just a few minutes, but, but we're gonna see essentially in this story a contrast of who's truly in power versus who's truly powerless. And we're also gonna see a contrast, and we've seen this before in the book of Acts, a contrast between who's truly in shackles, in bondage, and who's truly free. Okay, you have this man who was born a slave who now is, is the governor of Judea, the Roman province here. But I think we're gonna notice with Felix, along with, with many others in this morning's passage, that the free man is not truly the free one in this story. I'm gonna give away the ending. Suffice it to say for now, Felix is the one calling the shots in terms of the fate of the apostle Paul, or so it seems. Verse one of chapter 24 tells us, after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus, and they laid before the governor their case against Paul. So, so picture the scene. If you're, if you're a big, you know, People versus O.J. Simpson kind of, like that's your Netflix series. Here you go. This is, this is your, your jam, okay? We're, we're in the courtroom, essentially. The high priest Ananias and a group of elders show up in Caesarea with a lawyer, a man by the name of Tertullus. And what we get in the following verses is essentially the prosecution's case. Verse two tells us, when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man, Paul, a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. Verse nine, the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Prosecution begins with flattery. Since through you, we enjoy much peace. Since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In reality, Felix had established peace, the history books tell us, under his leadership through barbarian-like brutality. Like, heaven forbid someone in a position of power speak the truth in this morning's passage. The, the, the charges brought against Paul are, are threefold. Number one, threatening peace and stability. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, verse five. We have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. So he's a, th a threatener of peace. Number two, blasphemy and heresy, verse five, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And number three, attempted desecration of the temple, verse six. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. D just to, because I, I'm not sure we feel the weight of what Paul's up against. Let me just share this quote from John Stott in his commentary on Acts to give you an idea of how serious these charges are, to give you an, an idea of how surely Paul should not have ever made it to the city of Rome. John Stott says this, he says, Jerusalem and Rome were the centers of two enormously strong power blocks. The faith of Jerusalem went back two millennia to Abraham, okay? That's a, that's a long time in history. He says, the rule of Rome extended some three million square miles around the Mediterranean Sea. Jerusalem's strength lay in history and tradition, Rome's in conquest and organization. Their combined might was overwhelming, 
like more intense than Captain Planet, okay? Their combined might was overwhelming. If a solitary dissident like Paul were to set himself against them, the outcome could be inevitable. His chances of survival, Stott says, would resemble those of a butterfly before a steamroller. He would be crushed, utterly obliterated from the face of the earth. That's how, according to human wisdom and thinking, the end of the book of Acts should play out. Paul steamrolled. How can he possibly get himself out of this death trap, you might ask? Well, what we get in the, in the next set of verses is the defense's case. Paul representing himself in this court of law. It says, verse 10, when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. Paul, Paul shows his respect similar to Tertullus uh, to the judge, but unlike Tertullus, he doesn't do so by way of flattery. He essentially paraphrased, says, you, you've been at this thing for a long time, judge. Surely you, you see right through the, the prosecution's irrationality and lack of evidence, by the way. He, he basically declares all of their accusations to be lies. And then he tells Felix what is actually true. Verse 14, but this I confess to you, that according to the way, that is Christianity, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Verse 17, now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. What, what Paul makes clear in these verses, and we've seen this before in the book of Acts, is that it's not only or ultimately Paul who's on trial here. It's the gospel that's on trial. The, the one thing Paul is guilty of is believing and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. What the Jews considered a sect was actually the fulfillment of what the Old Testament had been looking forward to. Going all the way back to the very first gospel promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that the seed of the woman Eve would come and crush the serpent Satan's head. Paul basically argues that, that it's a theological point of difference that has him on trial, an issue that no, no Roman court would want to touch with a 10-foot pole. And on that basis, along with the fact that not only are his original accusers not around, but there is no evidence. The trial should be over, but it's not. The governor decides to ignore these things and keep Paul in chains. Verse 22 says, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Felix is, to some extent, attempting to play both sides here. 
He, he doesn't want to anger the Jews, and so he keeps Paul in custody for two years, as verse 27 will go on to tell us. But he also doesn't want to anger the Romans. And so Paul, a Roman citizen, is given some liberty while in chains, able to receive visits and care from his friends. Verse 24 tells us, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, okay, let, let's just stop there for a second because this is significant in this morning's passage. Drusilla was the, the, the daughter of Herod Agrippa. If you were around back in chapter 12 of this series, Herod Agrippa was the man eaten by worms, the egotistical glory thief. This, this is his daughter. She was the granddaughter of Herod the Great, the one who had all the babies slaughtered during the time of Jesus' birth. Not the most promising of family trees, right? Drusilla was part of a, a long line of brutal, immoral, corrupt leaders, which makes it all the more incredible how to the point Paul is with she and her husband, speaking to them about faith in Christ. We're talking about the judge presiding over Paul's case here, the one who seemingly holds the keys to life or death in his hands. Paul could have sought to get on Felix's good side, possibly show the, the dishonesty of his opponents. He could have even bribed Felix to release him based on what verse 26 will go on to tell us. What does Paul do? Paul does what Paul always does, right? He reasons about righteousness and self-control and judgment, exposing Felix and Drusilla's unrighteous hearts, their lack of self-control and their impending judgment before God. Not only does Paul refuse to wallow in self-pity, he refuses to stop talking about Jesus. He just can't shut up about the gospel. Like none, you can just hear him. None is righteous, Drusilla, Felix, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, including you two. Apart from faith in Christ, you remain under the weight of God's judgment. He lived the perfect sinless life that you couldn't live on your behalf. He died the death that you deserve to die. As your sins were put upon him and he was punished in your place. Clearly, Paul was not watering down the gospel message because we're told, continuing in verse 25, Felix was alarmed. He was bothered. And he said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. And when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. The, there's a weightiness to this part of this morning's passage. In the midst of his feeling troubled in his spirit, Felix tells Paul to go away. Right? Rather than cling to Christ in a moment of conviction, Felix clings to his idols, the idols of power and approval and refusing to let Paul go, the idols of comfort and security and seeking to bribe Paul. So, so very different from the story, if you recall, back in Acts chapter 16 of the conversion of the Philippian jailer. You remember that story? Like he feels the, the, the alarmedness that Felix feels and, and he immediately cries out, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Like we don't, we don't get any indication that Felix ever responded favorably to the gospel. Felix would, would go on to meet with Paul on a number of occasions, we're told, but only propelled by greed. I think this is significant if you come in and you're not a Christian this morning. And I gotta say it, because I think Paul would say it. 
You're not promised, if you feel any sense of the weight of God's holiness and your sin, that you'll ever experience that again. To, to delay making peace with God is a dangerous thing. Every one of us is one breath away from standing before our maker. Like the time to be reconciled to God is now, as the author of Hebrews would say, so long as it's called today. And it is called today, right? In the words of, of Paul and Silas to the Philippian jailer, Acts 16, 31, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus. Fall at his feet. Declare to him that you fall short of his glory. Trust in him as your savior. Bend your knee in glad submission to him as your king. Don't wait. Today is the day of salvation. Don't be like Felix. If you wanna talk more about Christianity, if you're not a Christian, I would love to get time with you and, and, and dive into these things that I would imagine the apostle Paul got into with, with Felix and Drusilla that day. Verse one of Chapter 25, is that right? I'm starting to lose count of the chapters. Verse one says, now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, verse five said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. As you enter into chapter 25, Paul's been in prison for two years. A lot of time's gone by for the apostle Paul in the short, I don't know, 20, 25 minutes that we've been in this morning's passage. In light of the change of governors, the, the chief priests and Jewish leaders, essentially they asked the new sheriff in town to have Paul transported back to Jerusalem so that they can assassinate him en route. The very same assassination plot that we saw earlier in this morning's passage. And they knew that even if that plan failed, if they could get Paul to Jerusalem, they could try him on charges of desecrating the temple, a trial that they knew that they would win, the punishment of which would be certain death. So either way, Paul dies. Like two years later, they're still seething in anger, wishing to destroy the apostle Paul one way or another. Would have made perfect sense for Festus to go along with the plan, being that his goal was to, to do better than his predecessor Felix in maintaining peace, which would have been an unachievable goal without the support of the Jewish people of influence. I mean, imagine a Jewish riot breaking out just days after Festus's appointment as, as governor. That would not go well. Probably not gonna get reelected, right? But Festus, in God's providence, does not comply with their wishes. Instead, he invites them to come back with him to Caesarea to bring their charges against Paul there. So that verse six tells us, after he stayed among them, not more than eight or 10 days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. And when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem, stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Again, just a, a repeat of what had happened two years prior under the leadership of Felix, accusations without evidence, just like Jesus. Verse eight says, Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. I'm innocent. Verse nine, but Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, again, seeking to maintain power, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Here we see Festus, just like Felix, walking the political tightrope, right? 
Whereas he wasn't willing to comply with, with the wishes of the Jews just a, a few days prior, he's now willing to open the door to the possibility of sending Paul to Jerusalem, wishing to do the Jews a favor. Just like Felix, Festus is self-seeking, seeking to win over the Jews, keep peace rather than doing the right thing, but not without seeking to keep the peace with the leadership of Rome. Again, it's a tightrope he's walking, which is why he gives Paul the choice out of respect for Paul's Roman citizenship. Verse 10 tells us, you can take a deep breath. These are the last verses of this morning. Verse 10 tells us, but Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and commit, have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. To live is Christ, to die is gain. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then verse 12 tells us, Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Paul appeals to Caesar, submitting himself to the authority of the emperor himself, knowing that though innocent, he'll never get a fair shake from Festus or the Jews. We know that Paul's in a difficult spot to come back to that John Stott quote, that he's a butterfly standing up against a steamroller. We know that because the emperor he appeals to is none other than Nero, one of the most monstrous villains in all of church history, who would go on to slaughter numerous Christians just years later, which tells us something of the heart of the apostle Paul. He's not looking for an easy way out. There isn't one. He's looking to advance the gospel and fulfill God's call on his life. Paul knows that he must both, one, stand before kings, and two, testify about Jesus in the city of Rome. We know that because Acts chapter 9, Paul's conversion story, God told him, or God said of Paul, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Up to this point in the book of Acts, we have evidence that Paul has carried the name of Jesus before the Gentiles and the children of Israel, but not kings. The reason we stopped here, we'll pick up the story next week. We'll see Paul standing before King Agrippa, fulfilling Jesus's very words in Acts chapter nine. Not only that, Jesus had said back in that verse that was quoted earlier, Acts 23, 11, take courage, Paul, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. You'll never guess where the story of Acts ends. City of Rome because that's what God does. He fulfills his promises, every one of them. Like God's protection evidenced in this morning's passage has everything to do with the keeping of his promises. We'll, we'll continue to see his invisible hand of providence on this treacherous journey to Rome, which involves shipwrecks and snake bites to come. This book of the Bible is gonna end in a really cool way on the high seas, adventure. I promise you we will get out of the courtroom soon enough. But I wanna point out I think three things. I came in this morning thinking two, but I think three. Um, I, I, I want us to see, and I mentioned this earlier, that this really is, this morning's passage really is a story of contrast. I'll point out two this morning, and then I'll tag a, a little bonus application point that I think should just encourage all of us, just heap, heaping loads of encouragement, okay? But first, the two contrasts. Number one, notice the, the power of the seemingly powerless versus the powerlessness of the seemingly powerful in this morning's passage. Again, Paul shouldn't have survived this trial for his life. 
He's seemingly, apart from his scraggly nephew, the, the least powerful person in this morning's passage. Right? To come back to that stock quote, his chances of survival would resemble those of a butterfly before a steamroller. He would be crushed, utterly obliterated from the face of the earth. But that's not what happens, is it? Why, you might ask? It's because the seemingly powerless Apostle Paul is in the hands of the sovereignly powerful Almighty God. And by the way, so are you, Christian. God is the the one ultimately in control. He has his man right where he wants him. Paul, Paul's nephew was raised up to use the language of Esther for such a time as this. Karen Jobes, in her commentary on Esther, which I think is fitting to this morning's passage, she says, beneath the surface of even seemingly insignificant human decisions and events, an unseen and uncontrollable power is at work that can be neither explained nor thwarted. In, in our in our greatest feelings of having lost all control, anybody there this morning? God has not abdicated his rule over every detail of your life. If you're a Christian, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, you have been established among God's new covenant people. And what that means is that God is working through his unseen hand of providence for your good, regardless of how things may appear from within the story. Romans 8, 28, very famous, deserves to be on a coffee cup, right? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. God's the, the same covenant-keeping, promise-fulfilling God that he's always been. His people will not suffer forever, and his enemies will not prosper forever. For those of us who, who struggle with what appears to be poor timing on, on the part of God in our lives, let me say this, and, and I think I said this in the Esther series, it's not God's timing that's imperfect, but rather our knowledge. God is always on time according to his sovereign plan. Derek Thomas, in his commentary on Acts, he says, in the last analysis, it is not important, and hear this, I'm gonna say it twice. In the last analysis, it is not important whether we understand what God is doing. It is important only for us to know that God knows what he is doing and that therefore we can trust him. Let me say that again, because my guess is that many of our hearts tomorrow will forget this functionally. He says, in the last analysis, it is not important whether we understand what God is doing. It is important only for us to know that God knows what he is doing and that therefore we can trust him. It, it comes back to that distinction between the theological and the experiential. It, it's way easier Hear me in saying this. It's way easier to affirm the sovereignty of God theologically than to rest in the sovereignty of God experientially. Is that not true? Like way easier to affirm the, the sovereignty of God theologically than to rest in the sovereignty of God experientially. This morning's passage is meant to, as I say from time to time, put a little steel in the spine of our souls, bringing us to a, a deeper level of trust that God really is sovereign, wise, and good. A God who works through, as I said before, the ordinary events of billions of people over the course of thousands of years to fulfill his promises and accomplish his purposes for his glory and the eternal joy and good of his people. I'll, I'll infuse the third point here before I get to the second contrast. What that means, 
just like the apostle Paul could bank on the promise of Acts chapter nine, verse 15, that he would stand before kings, just like the apostle Paul could bank on the promise in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, that he would make it to Rome, so you and I can bank on every single promise that we find in the scriptures from start to finish, Genesis to Revelation. You find a promise, God will make good on it because he always does every single time. That goes back to Easter, right? That because we have a trustworthy word of God, the scriptures that we can cling to in those difficulties, in those seasons of sin, doubt, unbelief, that those promises are sure. We can grab hold of them. They're true, they're trustworthy. Contrast number two, just as significant as the contrast of power and powerlessness is this contrast between the shackles of the seemingly free and the freedom of the seemingly shackled. Right? We've, we've seen this contrast before in the book of Acts, particularly with the, the religious leaders living for their own self-preservation, comfort, their own power, their own control. The religious leaders filled with jealousy and rage the political leaders fearful to act, trying to walk this tightrope, right? We, we see, even just in this morning's passage, we see the, the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, angry two years later. I can't let go of their anger, their bitterness. You ever been there? You just can't seem to let go and you're actually the one bound by your anger, bound by your bitterness. It's no way to live. And then you look at the, the political leaders. You look at Lysias, who, who, who tries to cover up the fact that he almost had the apostle Paul beaten to death. You, you look at Felix, who, who's trying to walk this, this tightrope, as is Festus. All, all of the, you, you look at Tertullus, the lawyer who comes in and tries to smooth talk with flattery to, to elevate himself to a position of power and influence in the courtroom. All these people, no shackles around their wrists and feet, and yet they're enslaved. Meanwhile, and we've talked about this before too, it's the Apostle Paul, the man in shackles, who's truly free, right? Felix, Festus, Tertullus, Lysias, all of them in bondage. The Apostle Paul certainly knew of chains, himself, right? Going back to, to his conversion story in Acts chapter nine, he knew what it was like to live that way. He knew what it was like to be angry toward Christ's followers, to be bitter and enraged. He knew those chains all too well. Once a, a jealous, enraged persecutor of the church, insolent opponent of Christianity. Now, however, a free man, though in shackles. Notice the irony in all of this. Very similar to Esther. Paul now having seen the beauty of the one true God, the glory of the one true God, the, the wonder and splendor of the one true God. A man who through his encounter with the risen Jesus had tasted the freedom of self-forgetfulness. A man who, who knew something of true freedom from bondage to the fragile human ego, who knew something of true freedom from the idols of comfort and power and control. Only the gospel can do that, right? If you're a Christian, you, perhaps you've tasted of this freedom as you've been freed from functional saviors and root and surface idols throughout the course of your Christian life. I, I don't know about you. I want more of that in my life. 
Paul, a man in Roman shackles, arguably the freest man in the entire city of Caesarea. How cool is that? I want God to to be increasingly glorified in me as I am increasingly satisfied in him. I want that for all of you too. I I want those who are enslaved like Felix to look in on my life and see what true freedom and joy really is, particularly in the midst of my suffering, in the midst of the hardships of life. And so this is my prayer for us as we close out this time this morning. My prayer for us is that we would more deeply see and savor Jesus Christ such that as a result of our seeing and savoring him, we might rejoice no matter what comes our way. Let me say that again. My prayer for us this morning is that we would more deeply see and savor Jesus Christ such that as a result of our seeing and savoring him, we might rejoice no matter what comes our way declaring Jesus to be enough, showing those who are truly shackled, the religious and irreligious lost, what true freedom and joy really is. Trusting in in the one who has everything under control, who is for our good, who is wise, sovereign, the God of providence, who makes all of his promises come to fruition. That's our God, Christian. He's the God of immeasurable power and true freedom. And we get a chance to worship him this morning.